Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people and others in the autism community to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. It's been a year like no other, maybe a week like no other here in the United States. When there's so much negative noise, it can be really challenging for it not to overwhelm you. That's why it's the perfect time to talk this week with Bill Clifton Toll as he will discuss how to amplify the good and overcome the negative noise in all our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here, Doug. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've got such a uh, history of terrific guests. I've really enjoyed autism stories. I, I really appreciate that. And, and I wanted to kind of start off where we do with a lot of the guests on Autism Stories in learning where does your story in the autism community begin? Well, uh, of course, at a very, very young age, as, as you might imagine. Um, and, you know, I faced a lot of the uh, challenges that a lot of kids did growing up. But it wasn't until I was an adult that um, I didn't actually feel that I had become a part of the autism community. Because, you know, after a lifetime of feeling different from other people and having sensory issues and various things like that going on, um, and also some of the uh, stereotypical uh, things that you expect, um, I started wondering if there were other people out there on the planet that were having similar experiences or uh, had the same sort of characteristics as me. So back around 2004, I jumped on the internet and uh, started looking around. And uh, after, you know, harnessing the available technology, um, I, I wanted to find if there was a name for what it was that I had experienced throughout my life. And uh, I stumbled a, a across this thing that was called oops wrong planet syndrome and um, this uh, I had never heard of Asperger's syndrome back then um, and um, I had also come across a, a website called oddism which uh, was spelled o-d-d-i-z-m uh, odd um, and uh, soon after that I started finding you know, big groups of people talking about this thing, you know, these characteristics and this situation. And uh, I started finding places like wrongplanet.net, you know, with Alex Plank and all sure. those folks, and, and also tribe.net. Tribe.net had various uh, tribes where people would go online and talk about their experiences. And it was like every single day after that, just illuminated more and more aha moments for me. And uh, I started getting to know some of the people and sharing my experiences and, and hearing about their experiences. And I was just so happy at that time to have, have found my people. And um, it wasn't until years later that I, I finally got a, a formal diagnosis, but it certainly was um, uh, a moment of kindred spirits getting together for me 
feel uh, a little bit better about myself, too. Now, I don't think I've interviewed too many people on autism stories that have been in the Navy, like yourself. <laughs> uh, my grandfather was in the Navy, so it's, it's very interesting to me. Uh, wow, yeah. Now, um, so you were in the Navy um, long before your career in radio that lasted uh, 39 years. I was wondering, what is the significance that the Navy has had on your life? Well, it was a, a big significance because it was a big departure of, uh, from, from some very bad experiences that I was having as a teenager, really, for one thing. Uh, I was always into ships. When I was a wee little kid, I, I had a plastic Texaco oil tanker that I played with in the bathtub, and I love, love, love tugboats. And, uh, you know, the, the thought of being out at sea seemed like such a romantic notion to me, just being out there watching the waves, catching the sunset, seeing the dolphins cresting up out of the water, things like that that you think of with being out on the ocean. And um, I really kind of had that idealized uh, concept of what the Navy was all about. I had no idea about the dues you had to pay in boot camp and uh, the, the strict military discipline and, and some of those other aspects. But um, there I was, I was 17 years old, and uh, I had for a, a few weeks this one girlfriend that I thought was the one in <laughs> high school. I just, you know, I was head over heels for this one girl. And um, I guess I was just a little too strange for her and she broke it off and I was absolutely heartbreaking heartbroken over that situation and uh, pretty soon for the uh, upcoming Christmas I asked my mom and dad if I could have a navy pika for my Christmas present and uh, my dad snooped around and was able to find where to get one and shortly after that um, I started asking them if they would sign the paper, sign the waiver, so I could join the Navy when I was just 17 years old. And uh, by this time, I had been playing hooky at school, probably not going to more classes than the classes that I had attended. Um, the, uh, the last uh, year that I had actually finished in my education was eighth grade. And by this time, I was supposed to be a senior in high school, but I wasn't going to class. Uh, I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was hanging around with people that were, uh, you know, kind of leading me down the wrong path and all of that. So I started nagging my parents uh, to sign the paper so I could join. And um, they were pretty exasperated with me by that point, too, and uh, had given up on, on my high school career and uh, said, okay, we'll go ahead and do this. And um, of course, one of the, you know, one, one stipulation was that I had to uh, get my GED or finish my high school education while in the service as part of my contract obligation to the United States Navy. And uh, I did eventually get a GED. But the uh, regimented nature of 
the Navy routine in boot camp really kind of spurred some self-discipline that I didn't otherwise have. Uh, I decided right away that I was not going to make a career out of it, but it did help me to uh, understand uh, the cause and effect, toeing the line and uh, doing what I could to, you know, uh, continue as a sailor. And uh, I got into the Navy cooking school program, which I was very, very passionate about. Ever since I was a little kid, I loved to cook. And uh, it, it has always been, as you know, probably say a special interest of mine. And uh, the Navy cooking school was good. And uh, I learned a lot there. Plus, I had already worked in some food service before uh, I joined. And I was really passionate about it and uh, got a great job as a cook on an oil tanker. Uh, I started off cooking for the crew. The routine, the routine of day in, day out, getting up, doing the job, all that sort of thing, was something you absolutely had to do in the Navy. Otherwise, you'd get written up. You'd be disciplined if you did not. And uh, these things were, were uh, kind of new to me. The consequences were bigger than ever before in my life. And so I had to adhere to that uh, in order to advance. And started off cooking for the crew, and pretty soon I was cooking for the officer's wardroom mess, which was almost like running your own restaurant. And, um, you know, serving better quality food, and I was really, really happy with that aspect of the job. But I didn't study to advance in rank. The rank aspect and, and uh, you know, getting promoted to uh, higher positions didn't interest me at all. All I wanted to do was cook on <laughs> a ship and look out the porthole and see the beautiful ocean and serve beautiful food and get the gratification of having people uh, enjoying my meals. And that worked out okay for me. Eventually, I got promoted to where I was the captain's personal cook. Um, but pretty soon, I got crosswise with him. And he wanted me to shine his shoes. So he left his shoes on the drain board in the galley. And at the end of the day, he came back and he said, you haven't shown my shoes. I said, well, I, I don't even shine my own shoes. Why would I shine yours? I'm a cook. <laughs> you know? And uh, so I got in trouble and I, I went back to cooking for the crew at that point. And I uh, had to do that for a couple of months before I got promoted again to the wardroom. And, and cook for the officers once again until I got my discharge. The Navy was good. It was it was discipline that I needed, but it also illustrated that it was not a career that I wanted to pursue beyond my contract. In fact, there were days that I just really regretted being in the Navy. It was very very hard. Uh, you know, I had to adhere to uh, whatever it was they wanted <laughs> and not necessarily do what I wanted. But, you know, there were some lessons to learn in that that were beneficial to me in the long haul. And plus, I got to run the uh, ship uh, entertainment system, which was like playing records on the radio and uh, cracking jokes and things like that. So I did that when I wasn't cooking. And that was another big opportunity for me. I've always been someone that 
doing what I want has been really important. So I don't think I would last very long at the Navy. But I'm wondering whether it was in the Navy or maybe in just any part of your life, how, like you talked about cooking being a special interest, how important have those special interests been to you? They have been the driving force of any little bit of success I've been able to enjoy. Um, had I not been able to tap into my special interests in a way that yielded a livelihood for me, um, I never would have been able to retire at an early age. And, uh, you know, it, I never would have been able to derive the degree of satisfaction that I was able to, to get out of what I did for a living, I think. Uh, I mean, I've done a couple of other things along the way, um, but being able to cook and the whole radio thing were special interests from the time I was just a little child, and uh, they allowed me to perform at a capacity that yielded a pretty good outcome for me. And so I was very, very fortunate to find those things. And uh, even, even if you can't make a buck off of it, um, if you get in the door by volunteering, if you love to cook, find if you, you can find a soup kitchen that needs somebody to help, or if you love to, to play songs and crack jokes on the radio, um, my very first radio experience was volunteering for the Lighthouse for the Blind radio reading service to um, read news stories. And that looked super on a resume when I wanted to get a real radio job. So just the fact that you're volunteering and you're flexing that, that special interest muscle to uh, do what you really feel passionate about, it can make a big difference in my opinion. And in terms of cooking, what's your go-to dish? Do you have one? Gosh, um, I do a lot of Indian food. I do a lot of uh, Mediterranean cuisine because in the Navy I got to you know, go to Spain and Italy and France and all of that. So uh, Italian, um, I dabble in some French, some Spanish, uh, paella, things like that. Uh, uh, enjoy a little Portuguese food. Um, just about anything except, you know, there are a few things that I will eat, but, <laughs> you know, there's, there's texture things and stuff like that, that I prefer not to get into, but, uh, the gratification is to be able to do something for someone else that they appreciate and they show appreciation for. And, uh, so to me, that's, that's part of the driving force too. In addition to the uh, the passion to put something on a plate that looks good and tastes great, you know. Now we have a few things in common, but one of those things is being a podcast host. And uh, this past June, you started uh, your own uh, podcast, co-hosting a podcast called Amplifying the Good, which is about decreasing the negative noise in your life. Why was it? so important for you to start a podcast like that? Well, uh, initially, uh, the person who gave me my ASD diagnosis, who uh, 
continued to function as kind of a coach and a therapist to me. Um, my, my doctor had suggested that as my career in radio was getting so stressful uh, and I was you know, getting older, um, that maybe I could do a podcast that was centered on uh, the life experiences of an older autistic person, you know, the perspective of being older. And um, so uh, that sounded really attractive to me. And my pal, Dr. Karen Berry Powell, who uh, I uh, attended the University of Texas at El Paso with. See, I did get my GED and I was able to go to college after that for a little bit. Um, she reached out with a text message when the COVID lockdown began and, and said, Oh, goodness, I got home, I turned on the radio, it gave me such a huge sense of comfort and connectivity and community to have these songs coming out of this box in my house with people talking about the uh, things that are going on in my neighborhood and the weather today and all this various stuff. Uh, I just wanted you to know how much I appreciate the radio. And uh, I texted back and I said, Karen, I got to tell you, uh, my radio career has come to an end, but, you know, thank you very much for, for your thoughts on this. And, um, I'll, uh, I'll give you a call. And so, you know, I set up a, a phone call with my friend and I called her up and I let her know that, uh, back in January, I was one of 1700 people in my company that got laid off at the beginning of the year. They eliminated my position. I was, a uh, senior vice president for local programming uh, by this time, uh, overseeing six radio stations. Uh, I did a radio show every day and uh, did everything from coaching other air staff to uh, organizing playlists and all the various things that you do in radio. And um, my position got eliminated and that programming that I did got centralized and move to, you know, a bigger market where it's now fed to my smaller market. And uh, I said, Aaron, uh, she is a person that I did radio vignettes with on, on a morning show at one time. I said, you know, we did these little, little vignettes on how to make a good life for yourself and how to uh, uh, do things that are good for the community and good for yourself. What if we did a podcast together? And so we started to pursue that. And it was based on essentially finding a silver lining under COVID-19. Uh, because here we are locked up at home. So what are we doing? We, we can't go out to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to start a garden and maybe grow some vegetables and cook at home or uh, read a few good books, catch up on our movies, binge watch a few things, all those various things that we've all been doing during COVID-19. And also at the same time, kind of analyzing some of the uh, social significance and things that are tearing at the fabric of our society, trying to find the common threads that can weave tighter bonds towards goodness with this particular podcast that we call Amplify the Good. And Karen is a doctor of spiritual science, and she's a yoga instructor, and uh, she teaches uh, elementary 
Spanish to kids in Indiana. So she has all this stuff going on that makes her uniquely qualified to doing these really cool guided meditations that <clears throat> kind of help us chill out under these strenuous, uh, stressful circumstances. And um, she's just fun to talk to and, and very knowledgeable. And uh, I'm kind of like the kid in the back seat with the comments, you know, to sort of keep it going. You know, <laughs> but uh, it's it's been a lot, a lot of fun and a learning experience. And uh, who knows, you know, uh, I'm still considering a more autism centric pod podcast in the future uh, with a focus on kind of, you know, the senior perspective, the older person perspective uh, for those of us that grew up during the uh, 60s and 70s and into the 80s. Um, before a lot of this knowledge came about because, you know, we, we uh, grew up in a world where <clears throat> autism was considered to be one thing. And yet, as you know, the range of neurodiversity is so vast. And uh, by sharing those experiences, I think we can all gain from that and, and uh, also to, you know, perpetuate a, a better concept of, of what, I think that would be a really interesting podcast to listen to on the experience of, of older adults that, that are autistic. And uh, how can people go about listening to Amplify the Good? Oh, you can find us on all the usual uh, podcast platforms like Google, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, or you can hit Karen up at KarenBerryPowell.com. Um, I always post it on my social on Facebook, too. You'd find me at Bill Clifton Toll. Now, when I started the Autism Stories podcast, I knew nothing about podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, you and me both, you know, when we started this off. The, the radio thing has helped me, uh, but... There's tons I still don't know. You know, I'm still trying to get a handle on it and, and to improve the quality of what I do. Uh, and I've learned a lot from you just by listening to, you always have such insightful, good questions. And um, me, I get so hung up in my own head that uh, I blow it. You know? uh, but um, you know, I've learned from autism stories. Thanks, yeah, preparation is, is the key. Uh, I was wondering, going back to your radio career, what do you think like during that time as an autistic that strengths from being autistic led to a successful uh, radio career? Oh, there's, there's absolutely no question. And I was, uh, there, there are specific things that have helped me. And we had a discussion, I'm, I'm part of, of a, a group I'm very lucky and fortunate to meet up with Becca Lori Hector once a week. Uh -huh. uh, and she's got a little support group that uh, we have discussions and, and things. And uh, she said, she put forth to the group, uh, was there somebody that you emulate or imitate either in your past or, or currently in life? And, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of call that masking to a degree. Um, 
in some ways because you know you're trying as an autistic person to try to be like the coolest person in the room or this other person that you admire and uh, you kind of create that in your head and um, that was very much true with me when I was a little kid I wanted to be John or not a little kid but as a teenager I wanted to be John Lennon I wanted to be the Beatle. Uh, I went through life. What would John Lennon do to be the cool person that's able to communicate with these other teenagers? And uh, I would try, but fail. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it it gave me at least a benchmark. And uh, my radio career really, really, truly relied on things. You know, people call them autistic superpowers, and Maybe they're not superpowers, but they're finding the things that are unique to your neurology and your your mindset that you can apply to the circumstance, like scripting. Scripting is something that we autistics do. I'll stand there in the kitchen. I'll be dicing onions, figuring out in my head how I can ask my wife about getting our taxes done or something like that. I'm scripting. I'm doing this preconceived conversation to try to have a positive outcome. And it doesn't always work, as we know, because you get into the real life give and take of a situation uh, and you get pitched those curveballs and, and you don't, you know, the conversation doesn't go as planned. But if you're figuring out what you've got to say between two songs on the radio, you don't have that other person to bounce off of. Right. You script that out. You figure out exactly what it is you're going to say, and you try to do it that way. The other thing is masking. And I know there's a lot of controversy about masking and how much better off we are if we peel away the mask and are truly just ourselves. And I understand the importance of that. But in real life, we all have to adjust and accommodate the circumstances that we encounter. And so, you know, we are having to adjust how we present ourselves under those circumstances to get a job or to uh, get a promotion or to uh, get your kid to take out the trash or, or whatever it is that you need to accomplish, you have to figure out the way to do that. I'm sorry if I just speak, I, I speak very history. <laughs> uh, I wave my hands a lot when I talk, but, um, and I did that on the radio a lot too. <laughs> People would make fun of me. But the, the other thing is echolalia. And, um, you know, repeat, repeating phrases or you know movie lines or song lyrics or various things like that uh in the context of a conversation can be a very very funny talent to have because people don't expect those curveballs and they go oh yeah that's funny or you know things like that and so i would say scripting masking and echolalia certainly contributed to me being a success in radio. Is that crazy or what? Can you talk a little bit more about the masking in, in radio and how that, that... Oh, that yeah, sure, you bet. 
Doug, you've got to be the same person every day on the radio when you do a radio show. And in order to accomplish that, if you're having a horrible day and you got pulled over by a cop on the way into work because your inspection sticker was expired, uh, you still have to be that cheerful presenter in between a couple of songs, you know, when you, when you get to work. And so that's one example. You know, you have to be consistent in how you present yourself day in and day out so that you're audience, the people that listen to you, your listeners can rely on you being essentially the same. I mean, you know, you, you might have a, I was on the air when 9-11 happened. And of course, everything gets thrown out the window under circumstances like that. And you just sit back and say, wow, this is terrible. You shed the tears, you feel the horrible, you know, vibrations that are happening but by and large you have to present yourself in a very consistent manner day in and day out and and that's how masking has um, actually benefited um, what I did on the air uh, and also to a degree uh, how I was able to uh, advance in my career because you know, I had to sacrifice myself to a degree to present myself in the best way possible to achieve what I needed to, to put food on my family's table and to, um, you know, make a career of it for 39 years. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, being the person that shows up every single day and, uh, does the job and, and has a good work ethic, those are the things that really paid off for me. There were certain aspects that lots of people in the radio industry did way better than I did. And um, another another aspect of that was listening to the, the disc jockeys and the announcers that I loved most that were really super successful and trying to emulate them and trying to be like that cool guy uh, when it was just me. Now, uh, getting back to your podcast, um, and and earlier when we were talking, you were mentioning the routine of the Navy, and on one of the episodes of Amplify the Good, you were talking about routine and, and ritual. And one of your routines is the chakra alignment meditation or body scan for those that might not be aware what what exactly are those things and how do they kind of help you in getting negative noise or thoughts out of your body and amplifying the good well um what i did is um my my therapist uh had suggested to me a book by john cabot zen that's called full catastrophe living and boy, it's a big book. It's got <laughs> lots of anecdotal yes, information, and you could you could spend a lifetime reading through that. But the essence of that book is seven principles. Well, at, at least as it came to me, seven principles that help you beat stress by 
being mindfully present. And those principles are um, non-judgment, being a non-judgmental person as best as you can, uh, patience, uh, acceptance, wait a minute, I'm getting it out, non-judgment, patience, looking at things with a, a beginner's perspective, um, trust, being non-striving in your approach, a little more chill, I guess, uh, and also acceptance and letting things go. So those are the seven principles. And coincidentally, if you know anything about chakras, there are seven chakras that run along your, your spine. And um, so I thought, well, why not take those seven principles from John Kabat-Zinn and apply them to the chakras? There are more chakras in the body than just those seven, but they're like the seven main ones. And so what I'll do is if I wake up in the middle of the night and I start perseverating on something that I shouldn't be staying awake to think about all night long, um, I'll start doing that chakra alignment and thinking of being non-judgmental and meditating on that on your base root chakra and then moving up to the next one where patience is what I think about and then so on and so forth until I get to the crown chakra on top of my head, which is letting all that go. Just let it, let it go out into the universe and, and it's not mine to worry about anymore. And uh, going through that and doing the breathing exercises as you go through the seven chakras with those seven principles is a great exercise to just, as a ritual, flush that stuff away so you can relax and go back to sleep. And uh, sometimes I have to go through it a time or two in order for it to work on a particularly restless night. But um, for me, it's helped. And, you know, it's not the only thing that I do. There's, there's other things. I, I do like EFT tapping. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Uh, Donna Eden, I think, is the woman who uh, is a big proponent of that. Um, I'll do EFT tapping uh, as I'm drip drying in the shower after I shower every time. It's a ritual that I go through, a routine that I do uh, as a means of self-regulation and you know, just being a little bit more chill as I go through life and deal with what we have to deal with, with our neurodivergence. So it sounds like you have some routines that, that regulate you and that you do on a daily basis and others when you, you know, kind of like on an, on a need. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, uh, there's the, there's stuff that I do. I've got a real uh, tight regimen where if I don't go for a long bike ride on Sunday morning, uh, I don't feel as good about myself. I have to do that bike ride to feel that I've, and it's binary movement, you know, pedaling one, two, three, uh, all of that is, is very helpful for the, the mind. Um, and then I, I walk a lot. I walk at least three miles a day. 
Uh, I do yoga. I, I take about three classes a week and then try to do one or two sessions on my own, even if it's just some sun salutations. Um, just as some of the physical rituals and routines uh, to regulate. Those are my three R's. Rituals, routine, to regulate, <laughs> I guess. So you mentioned doing yoga. That's an, that's another thing that we have in common. Um, I've seen I've seen some videos of you doing yoga. I think you're a little oh, better at it than I am, but that's all right. You know, I'm, I'm not a very flexible person at all. But um, it does help. Um, you know, I've, uh, you hear within the uh, autism community, uh, a lot of women in particular have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which um, they're extremely flexible uh, as a, a, a result of that particular challenge that they experience. Uh, and I know that it's a serious malady, but I am not flexible like that. My, my connective tissue goes the other way. And I'm, I'm not only rigid in my mental aspect, but I can be very rigid as, as an unflexible person. And I need that yoga to become more flexible mm -hmm. in mind, body, and spirit. Um, and that's really what yoga is all about. So, um, you know, it's just one more of the routines that restores my spins and recharges my battery. So I'm wondering a little bit about the impact of music in, on your life. You were talking about the three R's earlier, because I saw that you play a couple of Indian instruments, the tabla <laughs> and the sitar. So something that I thought was unusual for, for an American. Um, yes. How did how did learning to play these instruments come about, and is there any correlation with with music and the three R's in your life? Well, yes, um, it all goes together. Um, playing music. When I was a kid, we had a piano in the living room or whatever. I was very fortunate to have that, but. Um, Again, if I could find that one person to emulate to be the cool person, the rock star, if you will, um, one day I was, the television was on in the living room and the Rolling Stones were on playing a song called Painted Black and the guy had a sitar, the uh, Indian musical mm -hmm. instrument. And uh, I saw that and I was so mesmerized. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I was about... You know, maybe seven, eight years old at the time. You know, this was a long time ago. And uh, so I went out in the garage and tried to make a sitar out of a Baskin Robbins ice cream tub and uh, a yardstick and try to glue all this together to where it looked like one anyway. And uh, I just vowed that as a grown up, uh, someday I'd be able to get a sitar. And I was very fortunate to be able to. Uh, I got one for Christmas. My wife got me a, a sitar, and it's the most magical thing that's happened to me uh, since getting married. <laughs> um, and so I got that, and really playing the sitar is a stem for me. And the way the 
Carnatic musical structure is compared to Western music, uh, it's a little bit different. Indian music is not the same. And it's kind of like jazz. There's lots of improvisation. It's kind of like going to a Grateful Dead concert where, oh, why not play a note here? You know, that kind of approach. And so I'm liberated by not having too tight of a structure to where I have to get really, really good at it. Instead, I just approach it like this is a fun thing to noodle around with. And um, I watch lots of YouTube videos of other sitar players, and I try to learn as much as I can, but I'm not encumbered by trying to become Ravi Shankar. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be the best sitar player in the world. I'm just trying to be the only sitar player on my block. Hmm. And uh, that's what's given me a great deal of, of gratification is that I can sit there and play around with that thing and all the world, all the woes of the world disappear. You know, it's, it's my stem. It's a go-to stem toy. And the tabla is the drum instrument that accompanies it. And it's very much the same way too. It's, uh, you know, you play it with your hands, your fingers, and uh, boy, I can certainly relate to that. So I enjoy it and it's fun. Um, but am I ever going to be the best one at it? Probably not. <laughs> now you were just mentioning about that it, with the uh, sitar, uh, it's not too tight of a structure. Is that something that's important in your life? Uh, it's, it's liberating to be able to explore where the tangents will take you. Um, and, I think that in a way being autistic is sometimes very much like going down a rabbit hole because you go inward, you go into your head and you see where it takes you. And the sitar is the vehicle by which I get to those places in some, some ways. And um, so it just fits, you know, and, and being able to let it take me where it will instead of trying so hard to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on the thing hmm. um, is refreshing to, to be able to uh, just go with the flow. So looking from the outside, it seems like you found a lot of things in your life to amplify the good and to reduce negative noise. What advice do you have to other autistics that are striving for a similar thing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on anybody else's circumstances, but if you can try to find those things that bring you joy, Try to find what it is that you feel strongly about. Passions, you can call them special interests. You can tap into superpowers. Whatever it is that brings you joy and try to pursue that. Um, and to also learn to accept yourself and to understand and realize that 
everybody on the planet has struggles and, and situations where you know we're, we're challenged by things to where we we may not get where we want to be right away but if you can accept yourself and keep pushing and keep showing up every day that really really helps um I've always been driven by passion and not necessarily by power or money, but those things have a way of coming along to you if you're following what you're passionate about. And, um, you know, finding the root of that special interest and going with that is uh, a lot less resistant as far as a path goes than, than some of the other things you might encounter. Um, our lives don't look like neurotypical lives, you know, and don't expect to make them look like neurotypical lives. Follow your own joy, find your own situation and adapt to those circumstances. If you can, it does require having to adapt in certain situations. Um, you know, I live in a small house, but it's paid for, um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I wanted the big rock star mansion. You know, that was my ideal. But there was a lot of an unhappiness in pursuing that. Um, and I ended up, you know, turning a, a smaller home into a bigger dream for myself. And, and um, if you can find those routines, rituals, and, and things that um, you can do every day towards a goal, that can be very beneficial too. Um, one thing hanging out with Becca Laurie Hector, she, she points out that as autistics, we really have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, that's something that she has, has uh, mentioned in, in these gatherings that I've been fortunate enough to go to. And um, it's true, you know, uh, it's hard to be face to face with another person. Um, it's, it's hard to do a lot of things and we're, we're challenged by a visceral response to the world. And we have to realize that there's times that we're going to be uncomfortable and we have to be, we have to get comfortable with that concept. We have to understand that that's just part of who we are. And uh, so that's it, you know, find that joy, stick to the routines and rituals of showing up every day and realize that, well, you're going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable some of the time, because mm -hmm. otherwise you're not going to grow beyond what the boundaries are. Well, I, I always say that uh, Becca has so much great advice and I love, I love your advice as well on that. So um, you know, really appreciate the, uh, the time today, Bill. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's very kind of you to say that, Doug, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you very much for letting me tell my story, and uh, I hope it provides benefit to somebody out there, and I hope it amplifies the good. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks so much to Bill for the conversation. To hear more from Bill, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode to listen to his podcast, Amplify the Good. Also, be sure to check out the podcast description for information about Autism Personal Coach events this month.
If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also really appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Janelle and Nico Harding about Spoonie Households. Talk to you then.